Do you understand the dynamics of the stock market? Here is an episode with Brian Feroldi, writer at The Motley Fool, on his new book, Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? Why should anybody care about the stock market at all? Why, mm-hmm. why, why should we care about numbers on a screen that go up and down? The, the financial illiteracy is a worldwide phenomenon, and the U.S. Really? is no different. What, what brought me to investing is... Um, Uh, uh, after I graduated from college, my dad handed me a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Uh, this was 2004. At mm-hmm. the time, it was a very, very popular book. It was the... Wow. Yeah, wow. I mean, that's that, that sounds like a ton. That's, you know, about an article and a half every working day over that time period. So it is a lot. It is a lot. But, you know, that's that's the job. Um, and it took me about 18 months to do so. But that's why the book exists. I didn't think we needed another book about investing. I thought we needed one that explained in plain English uh, what the stock market is for beginners. If you look back at stock market history, it's very clear. Every 10 years or so, things go to hell. Business profits, corporate profits. To understand why, let's ask the question, what is a stock? In this episode, we are talking about the global problem with financial literacy. Why did Brian Ferroldi write a book about investment for beginners? Why does the stock market crash from time to time? Cost averaging and index investing, a powerful tool for people who don't have time to follow the market diligently. And what was Brian's biggest investment mistake? A basic understanding of the stock market is mandatory for every deep tech entrepreneur, business angel, and venture capitalist. A stock market is a place where companies get more liquidity for scaling their business and provides an exit for early investors. Brian Feroldi describes the mechanics of the stock market in his latest book, Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? I enjoyed his unique way of explaining complex economic situations in easy-to-understand layman's terms. Brian Feroldi is a financial educator, YouTuber, and writer. He has been intensely interested in money, personal finance and investing ever since he graduated from college. Brian started investing in 2004. In the beginning, he had no idea what he was doing and got his teeth kicked in. His returns improved dramatically over time as his experience and knowledge about the stock market grew. Brian's career mission statement is to spread financial wellness. He loves to help other people do better with the money, especially their investments. He has written more than 3,000 articles on stocks, investing, and personal finance for The Motley Fool. In 2022, Brian's book, Why Does the Stock Market Go Up?, was published. The mission of the book is to demystify the stock market. It was written to explain how the stock market works in plain English. Brian lives in New England with his wife and three kids. The link to the book 
is in the description to this podcast episode. Enjoy the show. Look like the the sounds uh, soundproof panels. Um, so they're blankets. They're like yeah. thick blankets that are specifically designed for sound. And then I have them on these stands, and they're like screwed in on the top. So they have grommets in the top, and they're just draped down. I actually saw a video of how to do it uh, online, and I recently changed around my desk. I actually have a teleprompter mm-hmm. with my camera in it, so I can actually look at you, and like <laughs> it seems like I'm looking at the screen, yeah. uh, but I'm actually looking directly at you, which is cool. Um, this is so, absolutely yeah. cool. That's true. Yeah. I hope so, man- put a ton of time into my home office to make it great. <laughs> yeah, uh, I got work to do back here, but um, the th- this this is good. Thank you for the invitation to your home office. It's absolutely great. Um, the first time that I heard about you was on the Investors Podcast. Oh, okay. uh, it was half a year ago. And uh, it was the time when I was thinking about, um, is there any book on the market that is simple and easy for beginners to understand investing? Uh, especially since in Europe, uh, we have a huge problem with financial literacy. Almost nobody knows about uh, investing, how to do it, what to do with money. And exactly. Same problem point, in the US. Really? It's the same problem? <laughs> oh, True. 100%. 100%. I, always thought, I always thought the experts are in the United States when it comes to investing. It's like anything. It's like, sure, there's, you know, the, the, the small sliver of the population that understands this are the ones with the wealth and the knowledge and they yeah. pass it on. But it, the, the financial illiteracy is, a worldwide phenomenon and the US really? is no different. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I thought it's a European phenomenon. Nope. It is it is global. Um we so teach we are- nothing we teach nothing about personal finance mm-hmm. investing in school. Nothing. However, there are some states, some US states that have actually mandated it as part of their curriculum. I mm-hmm. think it's just a matter of time before it goes federal. Um that's my hope. So it'd be everywhere. So there are pockets, but yeah. Don't think that Everyone in America understands what what the words that we're gonna we're gonna say. No, it's it's a tiny sliver of the population. Yeah, it's the same here in Europe. So there are only only a few schools that teach uh, about finance and commerce and business, but the majority doesn't know anything. And I graduated with a business degree, and I was not taught anything about the really? stock market, <laughs> personal finance, uh, compound nothing. All this really? has been learned on my own. But and I brought- I studied business. Yeah. And what brought you to investing then? Um, uh, well, do you want to record this? Yeah, 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 yeah. We are. <laughs> so. Oh, we are now. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, what what brought me to investing is um, uh, uh, after I graduated from college, my dad handed me a book called Rich Dad Poor Dad. Uh, this was 2004. At the mm-hmm. time, it was a very very popular book. It was the first book I'd ever come across that uh, had a couple of ideas in there that were really important. Um, uh, everyone's in business for themselves. The rich think about money differently uh, mm-hmm. than everybody uh, else do. The rich buy assets. Uh, the poor and middle class buy liabilities they believe are assets. Your house is not an asset; it's actually a liability. Um, uh, save, you know, spend, save money, and invest it. Now, I have qualms with many things about that book now, looking backwards. Mm-hmm. But it was a gateway drug for me to get really interested in money and finance and saving and everything related to uh, investing. So that um, I think my, my, my hunch is that that interest has always existed in me. It's mm-hmm. just that that book unlocked it for me at the right time in my life. And it just kickstarted a love affair with learning about money and investing that continues to this day. And uh, I think then also this book brought you to Motley Fool. You're a, you're a writer at Motley Fool, I read on the internet. How yep. is it? 
How is it there? So I was a uh, so I was a uh, a reader, a casual reader of the Motley Fool, starting in about two thousand and four. I became a, a paid member of their 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 newsletters in about two thousand and eight. Uh, in about two thousand and twelve, they brought me on as kind of like um. They identified me as one of their star community members, and they gave mm-hmm. me some access to things. And it was my dream for years to write for them. And in 2015, uh, I, I became a full-time writer for, for them. I'm not an employee for them. I'm just a, a contractor uh, for them. And that, that relationship continues to this day. And did I read it right? You wrote 3,000 articles about investing for Motlifull on the at internet? At least. Yeah, at least. At least. Wow. It's, wow. it's 3,000 ones that are available to the public. I've written yeah. many, many more that are behind uh, the paywall. But yeah, you, if you do it every day for a couple of years, they add up. How much time did you invest? How many years did you invest in writing in 3,000 articles? It must be 10 years, 20 years? Uh, that took me about six, five or six, wow. five or six years to get there. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's, that, that sounds like a ton. That's, you know, about an article and a half every working day over that time period. So it is a lot. It is a lot, but you know, that's, that's the job. I'm curious. How does your work day look like? My work day has shifted substantially uh, over the last two or three, two or two years. I've shifted away from, um, from writing much more towards audio and video. And that's how my, sp- mm. that's how I spend the vast majority of my, uh, my, my time now. I've also started some things of my own that have nothing to do uh, with the Motley Fool. Uh, so my YouTube channel takes up a lot of my, uh, time. My newsletter takes up a lot of my time. My social media takes up a lot of my time. I still uh, do work, uh, for the Motley Fool, specifically on their podcasts and their live streaming, but It's much, much less writing nowadays, much more audio and video. I saw your YouTube channel and I'm also a subscriber to your newsletter. It's amazing. I love it. I love the content. Thank you so much. And you wrote this book, which is absolutely great. Um, The first question I have to you about this book is what motivated you to put this book together? So first, let's people need to understand something basic about me. I never would have guessed that I would be an author. Ever. I am someone that has, ba- I, I am a barely, uh, barely literate with the English language. English was my worst subject in school. Mm-hmm. I got mediocre grades in English my entire life. And uh, I have the worst, I have terrible handwriting. I'm bad with grammar. I am bad with spelling. Like nothing about, nothing about my history says writer, like absolutely nothing. So um, I never had a dream to write a book or anything like that. When I started writing with The Fool uh, seven years ago, obviously I had to get better at writing simply because of the amount of effort that I had to put into the repetition. My early articles required ungodly amounts of edits because my writing skills were just so poor uh, at the time. But for, for, for more than a decade now, um, I've had a, a, a nagging question in my head ab- about um, investing books. And that is, I never understood why there wasn't a simple book out there that just explained in plain English what the stock market is, how it works, and how investors can take advantage of that. I myself love reading books about the market and investing. I've read so many wonderful books by by Peter Lynch uh, about Warren uh, Buffett, by Seth by Seth Klarman, right? All of the all the classic books out there that people read when they when they want to read about the market. I've read and I've mm-hmm. absolutely loved. Um, however, I never found a book that explained. The most important question that I had about investing, the most important question that I had was, why does the stock market go up? 
I think a lot of people have seen the chart of the S&P 500 over the last 100, 150 years. When you look at that, it's as clear as day what you should do with your money, right? It's invest in the stock market. And the stock market has gone up about 10% per year, mm-hmm. nominally compounded at that rate for over 100 years in the United States. That doesn't make sense to me intuitively. Why is there this thing that continually goes up in, in value? There's plenty of squiggles, plenty of um, backtraces along the way, but I never understood what was the what was the reason that this thing kept going up. Was it just a bubble? Was it like a hundred year bubble that was waiting uh, to to burst? The it was never explained to me the relationship between stock prices and corporate profits. And I just firmly believe that ninety nine percent of people uh, out there don't understand that relationship, the relationship between what stock prices are and what business profits are. The reason is the the, the thing about the stock market that is crammed down our throat is price. Mm-hmm. It's price. Uh, you go in the news, what do you hear? What did the Dow or the S&P 500 do today? End of story. That's it. That's the only information you get. So if you're, if that is your relationship with the stock market, seems like a random number generator. Some days it's up, some days it's down, right? Why would (laughs) you pay attention to this thing that goes randomly up and down? What's missing from the conversation is the thing that drives price in both the short and the long term. And that thing is the businesses behind those indexes. So since no such book existed, my frustration after waiting for Mm -hmm. one to be written for years, finally cultivated in me saying, maybe I'm supposed to be the one that writes it. Um, And it took me about 18 months to do so, but that's why the book exists. I didn't think we needed another book about investing. I thought we needed one that explained in plain English uh, what the stock market is for beginners. You nailed it. Absolutely. It's absolutely perfect because this is missing on the market. Basically, Uh, a simple explanation. uh, Let's say not oversimplified. Uh, You nailed every important point, but in understandable terms, which is really impressive. Other books that I read, I mean, behind me, for example, business books are very complicated. They are good written for the experts, but not for the beginner level. Uh, Your title is, Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? I agree to the title until the beginning of 2022, especially 2020, 2021 was mesmerizing on the stock market. In the tech sector in 2022, it doesn't look very good currently. So some corporates are corrected by 80%. Do you still believe that the title is right? Uh, Why does the uh, the stock market goes up over time? Uh, Do you think uh, 2022 is an outlier and we will uh, see better times in future? Uh, I, I think the title is 100% correct. Mm-hmm. The title is not the, the stock market always goes up every year. The, sti- the, sti- <laughs> the title is why does mm-hmm. the stock market go up? Why? Why does the stock market go up? What is the thing that causes the stock market to go up over long periods of time? And by the way, the publishing of the book happened in April of April of this year. And it just shows you how bad of a market timer I am. Because if, if, I, if I titled it, why does the stock market go down? It probably would have done better uh, mm. given what's <laughs> happened. No, absolutely nothing that I've mm. seen in 2022 rocks my, rocks my conviction in, in the things that I wrote about uh, in, in, in the book. If you study market history, uh, the data is is unequivocal. Uh, the markets crashing is perfectly normal. Perfectly normal. 
right? We had a stock market crash in 2022 so far. Uh, 2020, although that was the shortest stock market crash in US history. We had one in 2008. We had one in 2000. Mm -hmm. We had one in 1982. We had one in 1983 and 84. I'm pretty sure there was one in the 50s. We had the, the Great Depression, right? If you look back at stock market history, it's very clear. Every 10 years or so, things go to hell. And the stock market goes straight down. And mm. that is markets functioning, functioning uh, normally. One of the reasons that stocks provide such favorable, such high long-term returns is because every 10 years or so, they go down so much that they keep a whole bunch of scared investors away, people that don't understand how the stock market uh, works. And humans are unfortunately born naturally to be terrible investors. We, that, we have so many innate biases that make us human that simultaneously make us very poor um, investors. One simple one is simply that we take our cues in life about what to do from other people. Hmm. That is a very useful trait that kept us alive for tens of thousands of years. If you saw that your, your tribe was scared, it was in your best interest to act scared, to follow the herd. That kept you alive. If we do the same thing with our investments, if our investments, we are doomed to fail. Mm-hmm. If you take your cues from other people, which by the way, it's almost it's, it's easier to do today than ever, given the proliferation of communications uh, in our life. If you are looking at CNBC or, or Twitter, or you're, use, you're looking at what other people are doing in market prices, and you are taking your cues from them, which is a very, very natural thing to do, what are you going to do? You're going to buy high and you're going to sell low. And that is the exact opposite thing that you need to do to invest well in the market. So once you understand that, it makes total sense why a whole slew of new investors got really excited about investing in October and November of 2020, which Mm -hmm. is when the market was at a peak, right? All these people were posting on social media about how much money they made by investing in -in fill-in-the-blank meme stock or fill-in-the-blank cryptocurrency. And they take their cues and say, I want that too. Conversely, what we've seen over the last 18 months is the exact opposite uh, of that. Doesn't matter what you buy, you've lost money. And taking your cues from other people that are down huge and they're freaking out and, and, they're, and, they're, and they're selling and you see all of the negative headlines, the natural thing to want to do is to say, forget it, I'm out. Investing is the worst. It's, it's terrible. This is why my grandparents told me never to invest in the stock market. You're focusing on price. And you're taking your cues from other people. Hmm. If you do that, you're going to get bad results. Absolutely. I remember from the last two years, GameStop, Memstock, Reddit, the Reddit investment community was quite funny. And also getting cues from YouTube until November. I think everybody was recommending Bitcoin and Ethereum and Solana and Avalanche. Now, almost a year later, I think most of the prices are still down by 60, 70%. How was your crash experience in the last year since uh, you mentioned some crashes, uh, the dot-com bubble crash, for example, did you invest already in 2000? So I was not an investor in 2000. Mm -hmm. I was a casual observer of the stock market uh, in in 2000. I did have a couple of um, experiences with the stock market growing up, but I did not not have money uh, at the time. Uh, In the late 90s, when when stocks were just going straight up uh, in, in the United States, I was a caddy. Uh, at a local golf course, mm-hmm. and one of my one of my fondest memories of the stock market was these these golfers 
went into the turn, right? In the ninth hole, they went in to get some hot dogs and stuff, came out, I was a caddy, and they all had smiles on their faces, right? They were smiling because the Dow was up like 300 points that that day. Mm-hmm. Didn't know what the Dow was, but these guys were clearly happy because they had made however much money uh, they made and they were high-fiving each other. And, and I was pumped. I was like, does this mean I got a good tip? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I was like excited about that. At the same time, I remember in uh, September 11, 2001, when the markets reopened after that, I remember everything was just like straight down, right? And that was the 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 uh, uh, the response to the crazy, the mania of the late 90s was the unwinding of that in from 2000 to 2002. So like everybody, I saw that stocks went straight up in 1999 and went straight down in 2000, 2002. And my natural instinct was to say, this is the government's fault. Right. This, this is this is fill in the blank political leaders uh, fault, which is a natural thing to do. But now, obviously, that looking back, that, that's a that's not how that's not how the market um, works. So I was an investor then. I was an investor in 2008. I started buying stocks um, aggressively starting in 2004 and 2005. And I can tell you that that period felt awful. Just, just awful. I vividly remember uh, my wife and I had uh, two two incomes. We had no kids, so our savings rate was very, very high. We were plowing lots and lots of capital into the stock market. Every single time I did so, it felt like I was getting punched in the face and throwing my money into a an, into a furnace. Uh, right? It was just like everything I bought immediately immediately went down like by 10 or 20%. At the time, uh, banks were going under, people were getting kicked out of their houses. There was unprecedented fiscal stimulus. Everything that could have been gone wrong seemed to have gone wrong in 2008. Now, looking back, so many of those purchases were wonderful decisions. So many uh, of them. I got generational buying opportunities because I was investing in a period when the world was falling uh, falling apart. But if I was taking my cues from everything that I saw around me I, I, and, and I was watching what was happening in my portfolio, it always seemed like foolish to, to invest uh, at the time. It feels very similar today to how it did in 2008. Yeah, I think this, uh, this topic that you mentioned, cues, is very important. In the 90s, I was a student at the university. I studied business management. And... The teachers always recommended buy stocks like Amazon, buy stock like Apple. Um, but I said to myself, no, wait. So, uh, there must be something wrong on the stock market. Don't invest. So there was 96, 97, 98, and the stock market just went straight up. Felt like that. And I put my first money in the market, uh, in 1990 and 2000. And right after that, the market collapsed and crashed. So it took a lot of, um, let's say, nerves to keep investing to cost mm-hmm. average into the markets uh, in 2000 2001 2002 2003 and then 2004 5 and 6 i think the market reverted and it felt so great again and in 2007 everybody was dreaming again of a new world order the market it can only go up and uh, we will the sky is the limit or not even the sky and 2008 was the next big crash um what is your take on crashes why is it necessary why does it happen that the stock market fluctuates so much that it goes up and down like crazy stay with us we'll be right back you love listening to podcasts but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast maybe you want to build a brand grow your business or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. 
Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. So uh, once you understand the business cycle and how the business cycle works, stock market crashes uh, make make sense. The economic cycle Mm -hmm. makes uh, sense. Generally speaking, good times, economically speaking, um, lead to complacency. Lead to lead to um, investors being willing to fund uh, crazy uh, ideas. Lead to new businesses uh, being formed. Lead to everybody getting rich. Lead to all kinds of silly things happening. Silly things happening with uh, money in the market simply because the times are good. When times are good like that, money is venture capital money is pouring in. New companies are are raising money at insane valuations, and they're doing silly things uh, with their capital. That's just a, that's just how human psychology uh, works, and we project out that the good times are going to continue um, in, indefinitely. Eventually, something happens. Something happens globally that goes wrong, and that kicks off the start of the business cycle going in the in the in the opposite uh, direction. We've seen this play out in basically real time in a super. Uh, sped up environment over the last uh, three years. The way the best analogy I can think of is almost like it's like it's like a forest fire, right? Forests uh, are are healthiest after a forest fire comes through, right? All this brush that shouldn't be there just gets mm. wiped away by, by, by the fire. And um, the biggest, tallest, strongest trees are the ones that that last to find, but all like the dead wood gets cleared out. And that just creates this fertile environment for new uh, plants to come in and to sprout from, from the carnage. The the economy and the stock market kind of works the same way. Um, after years and years of, of growth and overgrowth, it becomes ripe for something bad to happen. A fire comes through, and during that fire, bad businesses that had silly business practices or outdated practices or take on too much debt get wiped out. They 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 um they, they close up shop, and when that happens, the strong businesses that prepared properly for bad times to come can go shopping on the cheap, or they can go on the offensive with their with their spending, and they can steal customers. They can take market share um, in a, in a downturn. Now there are tough periods for those companies too, but the strong companies survive and end up stronger because of the economic stress, and the weak companies end up weaker or die or get acquired during the periods of economic stress. At the same time, when when, when the markets are heading down, um, people are getting laid off. And um, because of the economic stress, people get People are more willing to adopt new ideas and new technologies than they had been previously, right? Old business models, old technologies die, new ones emerge. An extreme example of this that we saw was in 2000, how many companies globally allowed remote work in in February of 2020? 5%? 10%? I don't know. How many allowed remote work in April of 2020? 75%. All of a sudden, this fringe idea that was slowly taking, slowly taking over became the, we have to do this. We have to change our business practices because the world is, is demanding it. That is one small example of an innovation, a new business practice being forced upon the business community because of economic, uh, because of economic uh, uh, stress. 
That's why when 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 uh, things are going down, um, that's why the market eventually bottoms and and recovers because the bad is washed out of the economy, and that sets the stage for good to come in and for the economy to start growing again. It's an extremely painful painful <laughs> period for for everybody, but that is just a cycle that's going to repeat itself likely for the rest of our lives. When I look in retrospect on the S&P 500, it seems quite logical what to do. Uh, for example, in 2000, take your money off the stock market at the <laughs> highest level, then wait two years, reinvest it at the bottom, wait until 2008, take it off the market, reinvest it. Um, I never was successful with that strategy. Uh, so usually I invest when everybody invests and usually I take out the money when everybody takes it out. What is your interpretation? Why is it so hard for human being to resist temptation to run with the herd? It, uh, so... Let's talk about market timing first, because like you, I, I also can look back at any chart and be like, oh, it's easy. You buy, you, you sell at the top, you buy at the bottom. How is that hard? Why is market timing hard if, if it just clearly up, sell everything in 2007, invest it all back in in 2009? Uh, the reason that market timing is hard is because we know the answers to the questions. And when you go back and look at the, the test with the answers in hand, it's easy to fill them in. What's incredibly hard is filling in that test with incomplete information in real uh, time. Um, Think about think about the last the last th three years. The biggest news story this year is the war in Ukraine. Hmm. The war in, in in Ukraine. How many people were predicting that in January of this year? I was. I bet it rounds to zero. Hmm. Right. It, it was something that nobody was aware of. Nobody was thinking of. But think of the massive massive impact that has had on the globe. Uh, on supply chains, on 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 energy, on energy prices, the ripple effects around the globe are just enormous of that. Yet nobody was talking about that. Nobody could understand that in January uh, of this year. It became clear a few years, uh, a few years, a few months later that that was going to be uh, a big deal. But think about the impact that that has had on market prices every everywhere. How on earth would you know that even in January of this year, just a month before before it happened? You don't. You don't know that. So you can't, even if you knew that, you couldn't predict how markets would react to that news coming around because the global economy is so unbelievably complex that even, even if you knew that piece of information ahead of time, it would be really hard to predict what market prices are, are going to do. When you're making decisions, investment decisions today, you're doing so with all the information that you have available at the time. But the future is unpredictable. The future is just completely unknowable. The, there is going to be some event in the next week, month, quarter, whatever, that has a big impact on, on markets, and we can't predict that uh, now. So that, that is one reason why timing the market is so incredibly hard. I vividly remember in 2017, 2017, saying to myself, I think the stock market's overheated. I think it had been up for seven years in a row. We just had like a 30% gain in the stock market in 2017. Mm -hmm. And I said, this can't continue. This, the stock market is so unbelievably high. If I was a market timer, I would have sold everything in 2017. And I would have missed out on 100% 
gain, right? Because the stock market just went straight up uh, from there. Interest rates remained uh, remained low. 2020 hit, and while stocks declined, they just went skyrocketing. So my net worth would be lower today, substantially lower today, if I followed through on, on, uh, on my gut. If you were to ask me what's going to happen forward from here, I would guess the stock market's going to go down. That, that is that is the gut feel that I have based on everything that I'm seeing. But I know my own history with calling market timing is incredibly poor, incredibly poor. Rather than trying to guess and then second guess and then outguess uh, yourself, I think it's a much better strategy if you're in accumulation mode like I am to just buy no matter what is in the news. Buy on a fixed schedule and accept that occasionally you're going to be really wrong and you're going to feel stupid. But <laughs> over the long arc of time, if human ingenuity continues, those purchases will likely have a very positive outcome. I think feeling stupid is uh, a character trait that everybody <laughs> must get used to when they start investing on the stock market. Uh, 2017-18 was also a a very interesting year. Um, I looked on the market and the global economy in 2015 and said, I mean, every every big innovation needs one thing, it's semiconductors, it's chips. And every new invention, uh, iPhones, smartphones, all appliances have uh, a very large number of these uh, items built in. So I invested a lot of capital into the chip industry. Um, and in 2017, 18, I thought that was absolutely crazy because everything went up except the semiconductor industry. They corrected <laughs> sharply down. So I was looking to everybody was uh, celebrating and they sat there and said, oh my God, 70% down, 80% down. Uh, why should I stay in that? But uh, luckily I didn't sell. Um, I mean, when I'm investing and when I'm in the game, it looks wild. It looks crazy. And in retrospect, you said that the S&P 500 always went up. What are the three forces, in your opinion, the three major forces that uh, drive the stock market up long term? And mm -hmm. just don't, uh, we don't end up in a crazy up and down game like uh, in a casino. Well, uh, over the long term, there's really only one force that, that truly matters and drives the stock market in any given direction. Uh, that force is, is business profits corporate profits. To understand why, let's ask the question, what is a stock? What is it? A stock represents fractional ownership of a corporation. When you buy a share of Apple, you become a fractional owner of Apple, the company. As a fractional owner, you have a legal claim a legal claim on a portion of Apple's assets and profits indefinitely. Mm -hmm. That means that that legal claim has economic value so long as Apple, the business, is uh, generates profits and is expected to do so uh, into into the into the future. Take any successful business today that is a a, a, a giant in any way. Coca-Cola, Microsoft, 3M, Amazon, Apple, take any of them. Why did those stocks go up so substantially since they came public? There's one reason. Those businesses behind those stocks grew substantially since they came public. Growing means their revenue is substantially higher, their margins are stable, and their profits and cash flow are far, far higher today than they were 5, 10, 20, 50 years ago, whenever the businesses were created. That 
is the reason why any individual stock goes up over time. The business behind the stock becomes more profitable, period, end of story. Now, there are lots of nuance to that statement, but by and large, that statement is correct. So why does a stock market go up uh, over time? Take out the word individual company or business and substitute in stock market. A stock market is just a collection of individual businesses. The Dow Jones Industrial Average, the, the most famous stock market industry in the world, is 30 companies. 30. 30 companies that you've heard of or you've heard of the most of them. Uh, Microsoft is in there. Apple is in there. Salesforce.com uh, is in there. I think 3M is in there. United Health Group is in there. Big, highly visible, profitable uh, companies uh, in the United States make up the Dow Jones Industrial uh, Average. And those companies, by and large, are out there every day trying to grab more customers, get more revenue, and increase their profits. And as they succeed, over long periods of time, their individual stocks will go up and that will drive the entire market uh, up over, over time. But this is something that is hidden from our view because we don't, off, we don't see the profits of the businesses behind these companies. We just see the prices uh, of these companies. But if you zoom out and view the stock market and the stock market earnings over any long period of time, that connection becomes much more visible. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned Apple. I think uh, the market capitalization of Apple is north of $2, uh, $2 trillion. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, in 1995, who could have imagined that companies exist with $2.5 trillion market capitalization? I'm not sure if it's still 2.5 with the latest correction, uh, but Apple seems to be very stable on the market. When you look at other sectors, I mean, you mentioned we have a war in Ukraine now. Uh, that affects the European market. We have an energy crisis in Europe. I read that uh, on the newspaper that uh, the uh, natural gas pipelines in the uh, German Sea um, got sabotaged. So there is a lot of uncertainty on the market. Uh, why should people care about investing in such uncertain times? What's What's your opinion on that? Why should anybody care about the stock market at all? Why, mm -hmm. why Why should we care about numbers on a screen that go up and down? Uh, the reason that I care about the stock market is I truly believe that the stock market is the greatest wealth creation machine of, of all time. Uh, if you pull up a, a any sort of compound annual growth calculator and just calculate what, what, what would happen to your net worth, your wealth, if you just put small amounts of money into the stock market, the US stock market, over long periods of, of time. And by long periods of time, I mean decades. I mean, I mean, I mean, decades. Um, if you were able to invest just a few hundred dollars a month into the U.S. stock market starting in 2000 or 1990 or 1980 or 1970, any any long career, you can literally turn a few hundred dollars a month into millions. 
mm-hmm. into millions. And it's never been easier for individual investors to do that. We are blessed today with tools, with information, with zero cost trading, with uh, with index funds. And these tools make it so that you can have, uh, with very, very little cost, you can continuously invest your money uh, into the stock market, which historically has gone up somewhere around 10% per year uh, annualized uh, nominally. Nominally, meaning that's how much the absolute value uh, went up if you subtract out inflation from that, the real wealth creation of the stock market is about six, six and a half percent, something like that uh, in that ballpark over long periods of time. That rate of return outperforms bonds, it outperforms cash, it outperforms gold, real estate, real estate's up there. Um, but it is a wonderful asset class for investors to get to, to put money into and to grow their wealth and net worth um, o- o- over time. That's the reason I think people uh, should care about it. The, the stock market is a easy to use tool for for building wealth in in the long term. Doesn't mean you have to care about it if you're not interested in growing in growing your net worth, and if you're not interested in growing uh, your wealth, or if you're not interested in the stock market. There are other avenues available to you uh, for investing and for growing your wealth. I just think that the stock market is one of the easiest ones for investors uh, to to understand and put to put their money in. Yeah, that's true. That's true. The first time I got interested in the stock market was in the eighties. And uh, I was 12, 13 years old, and it was next to impossible. As in, uh, I grew up on the countryside, um, opening an account to invest in stock for a 12-year-old boy was next to impossible. When you look at the technology today um, with Coinbase, for example, everybody can invest in cryptocurrencies. There are also fractional investments in stock possible with uh, Austrian products, Bitbanda, for example. Uh, the technology is much better and the availability of investment opportunities is much better. How was it when you started investing? What were your most pressing questions as a newbie investor? Uh, when then? I first started investing, it was 2004. At the time, mm-hmm. I think the broker that I was using was the cheapest broker on the market. It cost me $7 to buy, $7 to sell, which was like most other brokers, which, and their fees had come down substantially. We're still in like mm-hmm. the 20 or $30 uh, range to transact. So the fact that we have tools now that you can invest for $0 and your expense ratio can be like a few hundredths of a basis of uh, a percent uh, at a year, it's it's extraordinary. That has been a tremendous gift that investors have um, uh, that, have been given uh, by speci- uh, lots of companies, but a huge amount of that uh, gratitude is owed to Jack Bogle, uh, the founder of Vanguard and uh, the creator of the uh, the index funds. But when I when I first started investing, uh, I wasn't taught anything about what the stock market is or how it works or how to get started. I, I was taught nothing about that, and I, I say that as someone that studied business in, in college. Studied business in college, and I was still largely um, uh, unaware of any of the the common terms that I've since looked up uh, on my own. My biggest question by far was, why does the stock market go up? Why does this thing seem like this random number generator uh, go up over long periods of time? Why should I? Why should I care about it? How do I invest? Like I, I know people that literally their first question to me is, "Okay, I'm interested in investing." Do I go to a bank? Like, how how do I actually put money in, in, into the market? Like, mm-hmm. lots of people just don't know about the simple fact that you need to open a brokerage account um, um, and to invest. That's the kind of information that is missing out there um, from society. Forget about what the P-E ratio of, of fill-in-the-blank index is or anything complex. I think people have lots of questions about the extreme basics uh, of, of the market. Um, the good news is, 
all of it's easy. There's nothing hard that you need to really, uh, you don't need to know any advanced math to do well in the markets uh, over time. You just need to, you just need to firm fundamentals of, of, of the basics. But many of the questions that I answered in my, my book, my book is essentially 60 plus chapters and each chapter is a question. All right, a question like, what is the Dow Jones Industrial Average? Those were the most common questions that I had when I first started investing, as well as the questions that my followers and friends uh, helped me to, to come up with. So everything, every, every important question that I had was, was uh, in, informed the creation of the book. Did you enjoy the show? Then please leave a comment about your favorite moment. Mm. No, the book is absolutely a go-to place for getting answers, getting great answers. I loved it from the first to the last page and they also marked the chapters. Um, when I look, I mean, Robin Hood, for example, uh, I don't know if this app is still is still alive for the company uh, with the latest crash, but this was something that I wish I had uh, 30, 40 years ago uh, so that um, I can start investing right away as a, uh, as a child. Um, the first um investment attempt that I had on the market was basically buying index funds, uh, European ones, not the American ones. Uh, also ETFs didn't exist in that form in mm. Europe, were not accessible. Uh, what's your opinion on uh, Warren Buffett's favorite advice to uh, newbie investors? Uh, he says that the S&P 500 ETF, uh, Vanguard, for example, uh, is the best product for everybody. It secures you participation in the US uh, economy with an almost guaranteed average 10% uh, uh, a return rate. What's your opinion on, on, on that strategy? Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Coaching Conversation 2024. This podcast is 100% dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial intelligent strategies to help leaders drive greater teamwork, collaboration, cooperation, greater attitudes, better motivation, coaching career development, just to name a few. I hope you'll check out our podcast. I mean, who am I to argue with Buffett? Uh, <laughs> when, when people, my default answer for, if I'm interested in the market, how should I invest is index funds, right? If you want to go with the Vanguard 500 index fund, great starting point. If you want to go with the total stock market uh, index, uh, another great, great starting point. Um, the reason I recommend that uh, to, to people, to I would say 99% of people, is because in my experience, 99% of people have no interest in the stock market. They're just they're just not interested in. If the idea of reading an SEC filing or listening to a conference call or figuring out what a market capitalization is or reading uh, financial statements, those things bore them to tears. And that is perfectly okay and also perfectly understandable. If if you are if you have no interest in following individual companies and, and learning how to invest and put your money in, in index funds, call it a day. You do that plus dollar cost averaging is is the the key thing that most people need to know about how to invest in the stock market and how to maximize their chances of doing well over long periods of time. However, if you are in that one percent of people, that weird one percent of people that's interested, 
in the market, that is fascinated by the market, that enjoys investing, that likes to dig into details, that likes to learn business models and mental models and likes to judge management teams, which by the way, I am a member of. Uh, if you're in that 1%, then I think it's okay to buy individual uh, stocks. Uh, there's a lot of work that you have to do if you want to invest in individual stocks uh, the right way, which is why I say to so many people, don't do it unless you're interested. But if you're interested uh, in learning, it's never been easier to learn about how to invest, how to dig through companies, how to um, how to sift through business models and through SEC uh, filings. And if you're if you enjoy that kind of thing, invest in individual stocks. What Akinix? Uh, uh, I would like to hear in, in your words what is cost averaging. Dollar cost averaging. You mentioned it a couple of minutes ago. Yeah. So there's a couple of definitions of dollar cost uh, averaging. Dollar cost averaging is the idea that you take a fixed amount of money and you invest that fixed amount of money into an asset on a preset schedule. Uh, for example, let's say you commit to investing $500 every month into the S&P 500 uh, index fund. That is something you can set up uh, once. And then mm -hmm. on, let's just say the first of every month, $500 leaves your broker account and it buys the S&P 500 in index fund in some, in some preset amount. The wonderful thing about that decision is you, you make that decision once and then you're on an automated schedule for buying regardless of what was happening with the market. If the stock market's up, you're buying. If the stock market's flat, you're buying. If the stock market's down, uh, you're, you're buying. Doing so removes all of the emotions and all of the questions that you have about when should I um, invest. So dollar cost averaging can be a wonderful, wonderful strategy for people to follow and also tends to match up very nicely with how, how the, the income that most people have. A lot of people around the world get a salary and they get paid every week or every two weeks or every every month. And if you can just commit to taking a portion of that and investing it uh, continuously, I think that's a great strategy to, to, uh, to go after. Absolutely. There are many videos on, on YouTube these days who explain the, the effects of uh, compounding. Uh, what's your what's your explanation of compounding? Uh, compounding, I think Ben Ben Franklin said it, guess, said it best. And he said, uh, compounding is when the money that you make makes money. And that process continues indefinitely. Compound interest, uh, Einstein quoted, it's attributed to Einstein. It might be misquoted, but it's it's the eighth wonder of the world. He who understands it earns it. He who doesn't understand it pays it, right? So mm -hmm. it's the idea that that capital is, is, is invested at some rate and that the investment return you get on that capital is reinvested at that same rate. So your money grows at a faster and faster rate um, over time. Let's just say you earn a 10% return on your capital. You put a few hundred dollars into, into uh, the market over a period of 20 years. And, and within 20 years, you, let's say you have half a million dollars. That's amazing. That, that, that's a fine result, right? The amazing thing about capital is what's a 10% return on half a million dollars? $50,000, $50,000. That is more than you would invest in a period of what, five years of putting a few hundred dollars into the market? You, you make that just from having your money um, compound for, for one extra year. And this happens again and again and, and again. Uh, this is how the wealthy become wealthier. Uh, over time. They build up a sizable nest egg for themselves. And that nest egg compounds at such an extreme rate that even though they're living very lavish lifestyles, it's it's small in compared to the net worth that they're creating for themselves just through compound uh, interest. So it's an incredibly powerful force that you need to understand. And thankfully, you can put that force on your side. 
Yeah, and 50,000 for most people here in Europe, it's uh, more than the annual salary, the annual mm -hmm. average salary that the majority has. And they can unlock it with small monthly payments when they start early, so in their 20s and invest constantly. I mean, this cost averaging and uh, S&P 500 ETFs or any other ETF is a great idea. And uh, at some point in time, I decided I invest uh, directly in companies. I can do it better. Yeah, uh, Warren. Buff I now understand why Warren Buffett is such a great investor with 20% return annually over a few decades. And in another TIB episode with Brian Lawrence, I heard something that is really unbelievable. Brian Lawrence uh, mentioned a story uh, that he, I think 20 years ago, asked Warren Buffett, how can he become such a great investor like him, but faster? And Warren Buffett mentioned uh, in his story that the... Every stock on the stock market in average goes up and down by 80% every year, which I couldn't believe. So it uh, was basically the reversal of what Warren Buffett generally uh, recommends, investing in S&P 500. And in Brian Lawrence stories, the recommendation was more buy at the low price and uh, then sell at the high price. Uh, what do you think about this? Uh, the average stock goes up eight, eighty percent every year. Is this uh, is this valid in your opinion? Uh, is this uh, really such a high fluctuation on the market? Oh yeah, I, I think I think what they're referring to is the difference between the fifty-two week high mm -hmm. and the fifty-two week yeah, yeah. Uh, low uh, for for a company. So it's not that every company goes up eighty percent every year. It's the variability between the fifty-two week mm -hmm. high and the fifty-two week low is about eighty percent per year. I've also heard that, and that's an average in relatively calm years. I think the difference is much more muted at forty or fifty percent, and in relatively volatile years like we've seen, the difference can be a hundred and fifty percent or more. So. Yeah, Yes, stocks do have huge really? variability uh, to them. And of course, if you could buy at the 52-week low and sell at the 52-week high, yes, you would do uh, much, much better. But that is the definition of trying to time uh, the, the market. And I personally don't believe there's anybody that has the capability uh, of doing that. Because keep in mind, the 52-week high and the 52-week low might happen. 52-week low first, 52-week high comes after, and it might also be the reverse. I've seen in 2020, where the 52-week high was was earlier in the year, and now it's a 52-week uh, low. So how would you buy? Uh, how would you buy low and sell high in this year, um, for for example? But yes. Stocks have plenty of variability uh, to them. And to me, if you buy at the 52-week low and it goes up, that is more a factor of luck than, than, than anything than anything uh, else. Uh, Short-term returns are, are random. Short-term returns that you get on, on your money um, are, are reflect changes in... Um, changes in the mood of the market and the mood around that stock more so than the change in the fundamentals around those stock. And I know no, I know of no way to predict the changes in the mood of other investors in, in, in a company. So I don't even try uh, I don't even try to do that. One thing that's often overlooked about Buffett and his sensational performance is a couple of things. First off, markets in 1950 in the United States were were really inefficient. Very inefficient. You could find high quality companies that were trading at three times earnings. 
four times earnings uh, back then, simply because information was so hard to, to come by, right? Buffett researched companies one at a time. He got a big book of them and he started reading uh, top to bottom. He could find opportunities in part because he just did a tremendous amount of, of manual labor, far more than other investors were willing to do so at the time. And you couple that with the fact that er companies were trading at three times earnings, four times earnings, five times uh, earnings. In that kind of environment, I think earning a very high return, knowing what we know now, would be would be far easier uh, than it is today. Today, there are supercomputers that are calculating uh, those kind of decisions in, in fractions uh, of a second. So the information edge that Buffett had previously is far harder to come by uh, today, especially with the big uh, liquid stocks uh, that are out there. However, one big advantage that Buffett had then that he does today is Buffett had permanent capital permanent capital. Buffett invested the money that his insurance companies made to float on that. So and not only did he not have a management fee that he had to pay, but he didn't have investors clamoring for him to give his money back at the worst possible time and giving him tons of money at the best possible time. So he had time, he had truly could take a long-term mindset and, and approach buying businesses with a long-term uh, view. That's not something that a lot of big mutual fund managers can do today or hedge fund managers can do today. That is something that individual investors uh, can do. So while the information edge that Buffett had is largely gone, and the cheap valuations is also largely uh, gone, investors that can take a long-term view still have an edge. Yeah, it's um, he has some uh, still something. I mean, I love tech stocks. Um, I'm uh, working usually with life science companies and with venture capitalists. So I have a favor for tech stocks, high tech stocks and steep tech stock. And in 2020 and 21, the ARC funds were celebrated. I think Kathy Wood had in 2020, 150% return on her fund. And um, there was a discussion on the internet in, in, uh, in, in chat rooms that maybe Warren Buffett's approach is outdated. When I look now at his returns in 2022, and compare it with ARC Fund, uh, he's still uh, averaging his 20% per year, which is quite interesting and quite amazing that uh, he continues to deliver these returns. Um, many investors, when it, or many new investors, when I talk to them, worry about making mistakes on the stock market. So like, uh, like myself, buying a tech stock at a very high point, like in November, and then losing 70, 80% uh, right after. Uh, what was your biggest investment mistake that you can talk about? Uh, so first, let me talk about Kathy Wood for a second, because I think that that's, sure. that's very interesting. So Kathy Wood had really skyrocketed to popularity in 2019, mm -hmm. 2020 in particular, when people were just plowing money into her, her funds and her fund was up, yeah, an ungodly amount in 2020. Over the last year, we've seen the exact reverse uh, of that, when her fund and her style has just gone completely uh, so first, let me talk about Kathy Wood for a second, because I think that that's, sure. that's very interesting. So Kathy Wood had really skyrocketed to popularity in 2019, mm -hmm. 2020 in particular, when people were just plowing money into her, her funds and her fund was up, yeah, an ungodly amount in 2020. Over the last year, we've seen the exact reverse uh, of that, when her fund and her style has just gone completely out of favor, and we've seen an absolute collapse um, in prices. However, if you pull up the long-term chart of Kathy Wood's ARK Innovation ETF, her flagship fund, and chart that against the S&P uh, 500, would it surprise you that she's outperforming? 
since the fund was was created? Would that be? I'm curious how many people actually know that. Now she's outperforming the S and P 500 by an incredibly small margin, uh, 0.6% right now. So all of the outperformance that she had prior to this has essentially been given back, given the enormous drop in tech stocks. But Kathy Wood and the the uh, rise of her and the huge popularity that she experienced in 2020 and then the downfall that she's experienced uh, more 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 recently is just an unfortunate thing of being a visible a visible fund a visible fund manager. She can't control when people plow money into her fund and she can't control when people pull money uh, out of of her fund. But I like to judge managers by their long-term track record and Kathy Wood's Arc Innovation Fund is actually ever so slightly outperforming. That is not easy uh, easy to do. That doesn't mean that I think that Kathy Wood is um, going to outperform moving forward or I agree with everything that she uh, does, but people tend to judge fund managers over the wrong time period. All we've seen over the last year is her style went dramatically in favor to dramatically out of favor. That, that That's it. And that, that is the returns um, that she's she's gotten. Actually, now that you say that, I'm really curious if uh, she has outperformed Berkshire Hathaway um, since uh, since the, her fund was was uh, created. And let's see, the answer is yes. Her fund, since it was launched, Arc the Arc Innovation ETF, uh, which was launched, I think, in late 2014, is outperforming hmm. Berkshire Hathaway by 20 percent over the last seven years. Does that really? <laughs> does that surprise you? I mean, I, I have a feeling that a whole bunch of people aren't even aware of that fact just because the only thing they're focused on is the extreme negative returns um, more more recently. But um, we'll, 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 time will tell whether Kathy's uh, strategy actually pays off in the long term uh, or not. But the volatility that her investors are experiencing has been has been very, very high, uh, obviously. I forget what your initial question was. Sorry, I went on a little... No, no, we, we can <laughs> say it. I, I mean, I like her investment style because she, uh, it looks to me like she's resembling venture capital investment style on the public mm -hmm. market, so less private market. And the volatility in tech stocks is just insane. I mean, many companies, I think also that she invests in are pre-revenues. Still, they are public listed, but not um, pre-revenue in a term that they are not profitable. Uh, in a way, um, which is, I think, on the on the public market creates much more volatility than in the private market. So this is my take on on, on Kathy Wood. Yeah, why that, do you see that's, this? That's a movements? feature of being a public company. You you are mm -hmm. subject to the whims of of the public markets. Uh, of her Arc Innovation in ETF, I heard top holding is Tesla. After that's Roku, then Teladoc, then Square, then Zoom, then Shopify, then Spotify, then Twilio, Coinbase, and Unity. Uh, I believe that all all of those companies are are, are revenue generating. Not all of them are profitable uh, by a, by a long shot. Um, and I, I personally disagree with several of her opinions on, on mm -hmm. companies, but you know, that's her strategy. Uh, but we, I, we like many of the same, many of the same, uh, businesses and her number one holding Tesla. She's been, she's been right on for, for, uh, since she's been out there, uh, beating the drum out at so only time will tell if her, if her strategy holds up over long, over long periods of time. But the, the downside to being a hyper growth investor is while it's lots of fun on the way up, it sucks way harder <laughs> on the way down. <laughs> and by the way, my, my style is also very high growth. Uh, tends mm -hmm. to be favor high growth stocks. So 2020 was a very fun year. The last year has been no fun. Yeah, that's true. That's true. The, the, the last year's were hard. The question was, the initial question was, what was your biggest investment mistake? Okay, thank you. Uh, sorry for that roundabout uh, communication. Uh, I've made so many mistakes uh, in investing. And while it's easy to look back 
and say, well, my biggest mistake was not just plowing it all into Amazon on day one and, and calling it uh, a day or actually monster beverage uh, on, on day one. Uh, that's that's obviously not a mistake that I would have ever go- gone for. Uh, all my mistakes really come down to me wanting uh, market beating returns as fast as possible, right? Me thinking that I could outsmart the market, outtime the market, and uh, not really understanding the nature of, of, of how businesses work. Now, I've bought plenty of stocks that have permanently lost me 70% of my capital, right? I bought them, I was wrong, they went down, and I lost money on that. I've done that with leverage. Two, uh, my number one holding at one point, um, my number one holding, I put options on, a bullish mm-hmm. option position called a synthetic long. That position then fell 70%. So not only did my number one position was 70%, I did it with leverage. I did it with oh. leverage. Oh. That was a painful lesson to learn about um, about a leverage. Um, so I've made lots, I bought lots of terrible, terrible stocks. The worst investing mistakes that I've ever made, though, on an individual stock level um, is, is buying a great company and then selling that same great company way too early, simply because I was in a rush to take a, a profit. Um, I sold Microsoft at $24. Microsoft is currently 235 So I missed out on a 10-bagger in Microsoft simply because I was in a rush to take a profit. I bought it like 20, I sold it at 24. And that single decision um, has cost me uh, more money, more lost wealth than a whole bunch of the terrible stocks that I bought and then then rode down and and then sold for, for huge losses. I've done that with another company uh, called Dexcom. Um, Given the split adjusted price, I don't even know what my split adjusted price is. It's gotta be around a dollar. No, it's gotta be less than a dollar. And Dexcom is currently $81. So I mixed out on an 80 plus bagger simply because I was in a rush to take a profit. And I've done this on many, many uh, companies. So the biggest wealth destroying decisions I've ever made is buying something, being in a rush to sell it, and then that stock goes on to deliver tremendous returns uh, for investors. Yeah, holding on is sometimes uh, quite challenging. You mentioned some stock. I mean, Tesla, for example, I think until 2019, it doesn't look like uh, the stock will ever move upwards. It's just my memory. <laughs> but but correct me if I'm wrong. I think the entire time from 2010 until 2019, it looked more like sideways. Mm-hmm. And there were some some articles on the market that uh, Tesla will go bankrupt and uh, they will not be able to raise money. And then suddenly the stock went up, just up and up, up in the way. And I think also the ARC funds went up. Um, there are so many different styles on the market. It's quite interesting. There is Kathy Wood style, investing in growth stock. Then the interesting thing that I saw in Warren Buffett's portfolio is that uh, I think from his public companies, almost 50% of his investment is in Apple. Uh, 44, 46, something around that. Huge and bet. Huge bet. And then there is Ray Dalio, who recommends with his all-weather strategy uh, to just diversify into the market. What is what is your strategy currently when you think about investing? Is it more the Ray Dalio style, investing in uh, the entire market? Is it more uh, the Warren Buffett style, go big on, on one holding? Or as you mentioned before, a little bit Kathy uh, Woods with her growth growth approach. What, what is most attractive to you? 
my style is uh, first off, I'm an individual investor. I don't have fund. I don't have anybody else to report to. I'm not managing anybody else's money, and I refuse to. Uh, quite frankly, I have no interest in managing anybody else's money except for my own. Uh, because of that, uh, my style, my investing style, is largely a diversified group of high growth companies that I think have the chance of being multi baggers. Over over the years uh, ahead. Now that is a volatile strategy that I that I uh, deploy. While uh, so I, I own dozens of stocks, many of which I'm sure are going to be worthless uh, one day or declined substantially. But if I occasionally if I occasionally buy the next Tesla, which I did in 2012, and I hold it, uh, that's that's the only thing that's going to matter. That's the only mm-hmm. thing that's going to matter is if I occasionally get the next uh, Tesla, the next Amazon uh, into my por- portfolio. However, that is a volatile strategy. It's a volatile strategy. The way that I mitigate that volatility is by keeping my personal finances extremely conservative. Extremely conservative. My personal finances have multiple sources of income, have a high savings rate, have a six-month emergency fund, and have zero debt. Zero. Okay? That is extremely conservative. Personal personal finances and that extreme conservatism in my personal finances allows me to absorb a large amount of volatility in my portfolio because I know that if my portfolio is volatile like it's been over the last three years actually even longer than that that volatility in no way impacts my day to day life none there's my 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 family's my family's living situation is not impacted at all by any volatility that that could come my that could come my my way. So while it's mentally painful for me to see my portfolio get smashed on on occasion, like it has over the last over the last year year plus, it doesn't impact my personal life, my actual living, my actual day to day life at all. Because again, my personal finances are so incredibly uh, uh, conservative. So that's the model that I've I've chosen to do. Ray Dalio, I think, is is brilliant, and he advocates for the all weather portfolio. And he's been out there making macro calls that have seemed to really come come right. I know that his portfolio is doing very very well. Buffett likes to take concentrated bets in a small uh, number of companies that he owns. He owns um, that he owns and knows very well, and that style works great for for him. Uh, other investors take more diversified uh, approach. There's no right or wrong way to do it. The, the best way to invest is the one that best suits your personality. I know a great investor that would be perfectly happy having 80% of his net worth in one company. As long as that company was earned its spot there and was an inc- had an incredibly bright future ahead, he would be comfortable with that. I wouldn't be able to sleep. Not great I just wouldn't be able to sleep to sleep at night. Anything beyond fifteen percent of my portfolio makes me makes me uneasy. So I would be personally selling that company, even if I believed in it, simply for risk management uh, purposes. But that's that's the way that I chose to approach it. And th- there's lots of ways that work. You just have to find the one that works for you. And learn from mistakes. I had once. Uh... A larger bet in the portfolio. Unfortunately, the company doesn't exist anymore. Uh, it's, it's it's smart smart words that you mentioned. Uh, built multiple income streams, no debt, and uh, diversification. I think this is uh, definitely something that uh, everybody can take away. Um, we are at the end of our um, conversation. Uh, did I miss anything in the podcast? I have one question left. Uh, did I miss anything that you would like me to ask you? Nope, we covered a lot. Uh, then I have one question left. Um, if you could 
go back to your younger self uh, when you started investing and you could give your younger self one investment advice from your experience that you have right now, what investment advice would that be? That's hard to say. There's a lot of things that I, I, I could say there, but by and large, I'm very happy with the way things have turned out. Uh, for, for me, I'm ha very happy with all the painful lessons that I learned along the way because they've made me a better uh, better investor. But if I had to do one, it would probably be uh, think long-term. Mm -hmm. Brian, thank you very much for your time and this great conversation. I can recommend your book to everybody who's interested in investing. And I wish you and your family a great time, successful investing, and hope to talk to you soon. Thank you so much for having me. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Bye. You too. Did you enjoy the show? Then please leave a comment about your favorite moment.